morning everyone. I thought I would uh, take a little look at a very interesting article published in the Huffington Post um, by Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Uh, and this obviously at the time of recording is Johnson essentially one year after winning the 2019 election and all of the events that have fallen out from that in relation to things like Brexit and particularly obviously Covid. Um, his assessment or an assessment of him is quite balanced, although quite critical as well uh, as Prime Minister, his relationship particularly with the Cabinet, which would be particularly useful for A-level students. So it's entitled, One Year On From The Election Victory of December 19, How 2020 Exposed Boris Johnson As Never Before. And the subtitle, Prime Minister's Leadership Has Been Marred By U-Turns, Blunders, and rebellions. Though sleep deprived but still buzzing with the adrenaline of his election success, Boris Johnson was among the few people, neither drunk nor hungover, as he arrived at the Tory party victory rally at the Queen Elizabeth II Conference Centre in December 2019. Having bulldozed his way through the campaign, quite literally in that memorable footage of him, smashing a wall labelled gridlock. He was at the pains to strike a unifying note, directly addressing former Labour voters who had delivered his majority in the red wall of the Midlands and the North. Johnson thanked them for switching to us Conservatives, One Nation Conservatives, for the first time. After a Christmas Caribbean holiday with his fiancée Carrie Simmons, his political honeymoon continued through the start of 2020, culminating in a fireworks display on January the 31st to mark the UK finally leaving the EU. Yet on the very day he had got Brexit done, a phrase as deceptive as it was effective, the first case of COVID-19 was registered in the UK. The coronavirus that had been silently killing thousands in China had hit landfall in Europe and Britain was to prove no exception. Covid naturally dominated the first year of Johnson's new government, but just how has he coped over the past 12 months, not just with the health crisis, but also in delivering on the Tory manifesto that got him elected in the first place? In a year of setbacks and U-turns, a year of hospitalisation, divorce and new fatherhood, has he lived up or down to expectations? Delegating or abrogating responsibility? In that speech on the morning after the triumph of the night before, the re-elected Prime Minister declared, I will make it my mission to work night and day, to work flat out and prove you right in voting for me. The pledge to work night and day was soon called into question in February as he spent nearly a fortnight at the ministerial mansion of Chevening and Kent. Despite pleas to visit areas hit by flooding and storm Dennis, and despite the first Cobra emergency meetings on COVID taking place in London, the PM remained with his partner at the 17th century Lakeside residence. The muttering on Whitehall was that he didn't work weekends, but this seemed another level of laid-back leadership. Insiders said the Prime Minister spent a chunk of his time sorting out his messy divorce from his wife Marina. There are rumours, denied, that he was even trying to finish a book on Shakespeare, and they had promised publishers that it would be published by April. As the Covid crisis spiralled, the Prime Minister finally called the first national lockdown. 
Yet within weeks, he was struck down by the virus and spent three days in intensive care. He recovered, but for MPs inside and outside his party, his absence exposed one of the big failures of the past 12 months, the lack of a strong cabinet who could either replace him or stand up to him. One former cabinet colleague of Johnson's puts it bluntly, this is a third-rate cabinet, the worst I've known in 50 years. He's paranoid about people being better than him. He won't even let Penny Mordant, former uh, Department for International Development Secretary, now a mere Minister of State, in. It's not so much cutting down tall poppies as giving the lawn a razor cut. Ask most MPs in the party which of this cabinet would have made it into Margaret Thatcher's cabinet and the answer is very round indeed. Zero. One MP actually warned Johnson in 2018 that if he ever became PM, he should not repeat the Mayor of London model that had served him well in City Hall. I told him that as Mayor, you're directly elected and your deputies aren't. So no matter how good they are, they're not a challenge to you. In Cabinet, it's not like that. Through 2020, many of the Cabinet were indeed exposed to accusations of incompetence or irrelevance. Pretty Patel was rarely let on the airwaves as bullying allegations dogged her and Gavin Williamson was embroiled in the summer exams fiasco. Paul Goodman, editor of the activist's website Conservative Home said, It's not a stellar collection. The people you can put out front of house are basically the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, Matt Hancock up to a point, Grant Shapps and Michael Gove. But Gove, who was meant to oversee Brexit as well as handling large parts of the Covid response, divides opinion. Gove talks a great story, but he could run a whelk stall, says one former cabinet colleague. Believe me, I've seen him in action. Like Boris, he's a journalist, very good at attracting good headlines, but that's it. One ex-minister is scathing. At first I thought, oh well, He'll be growing new talent and they'll learn their way and then make the mistakes and get their feet under the table. And when he has a crisis in a couple of years' time, they'll be able to cope with it. Of course, crises don't come conveniently. And in this case, the crisis came straight away. On COVID, we have been the worst in the world. The worst economic results, the worst medical results. Just as his immune system was exposed to COVID, his whole style of politics was exposed by COVID and the huge pressures it placed on statecraft, critics say. Another key problem that emerged was Johnson's reliance on Chief Advisor Dominic Cummings, who at the start of the year embarked on a war with the media, the BBC, the courts and others. Before COVID hit the UK, Cummings tried to centralise the system of special advisors, attempting to put the number 10 or put number 10 much more in control. The problem with centralisation is you have more decisions to make and you have to make them quickly and won't be well briefed on them, which means making decisions on the basis of instinct and judgement and history and previous repertoire, says one former senior minister. But that doesn't work when you fill number 10 with people who had no history of government, no previous repertoire. That meant that the error rate in the running of government went up dramatically, even before COVID. Several Tory MPs, however, believe Johnson has done his best 
with the terrible hand dealt him in 2020. One former cabinet minister said, He wasn't my choice's leader, and I'm no cheerleader for him, but I think he hasn't done badly. They say the UK's open economy made it susceptible to importing the virus. The lack of testing capacity was inherited from previous governments, and even in the timing of lockdown, Johnson's followed scientific advice. It was the opposite of negligence, and a lot of thought was given to the timing, they said. In assessing a Prime Minister's first year, the usual practice is to check their manifesto and other promises against delivery. The Institute for Government think tank runs its own policy tracker, and it shows just what a mixed bag of performances different Whitehall departments have produced. HuffPost's UK's own manifesto audit shows many promises remain unmet. Some key pledges, such as hiring more nurses, more police, and starting hospital rebuilds appear to be on track. The immigration bill's point-based system was passed into law. Boris has killed that issue stone dead, but doesn't get enough credit for it, says one insider. Constitutional change has been watered down, but a start has been made on scrapping the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. Investment in schools and infrastructure has started, albeit after years of underfunding. But social care remains a massive policy vacuum. In many ways, however, the manifesto itself was deliberately thin. Spooked by Theresa May's dementia tax blunder, as well as having to be drafted rapidly for snap election December 2019, the promises were slimmed down. Alex Thomas, a former senior civil servant and now programme director for the Institute for Government, said, A lot of the cautious ticks on our policy tracker are about giving more money to stuff, and that's easy for governments. The question of whether it's money well spent comes a few years down the line. But the actual kind of administrative process uh, of it is as straightforward as the Treasury stroke of a pen. Obviously the huge question mark over it all is Brexit. The manifesto said we will negotiate a trade agreement, so the next few days will be quite determinative for that. Of the other two big gaps, the first is on social care. It becomes the third rail of British politics. The other one is on levelling up, which depends on whether you see this is just more money and infrastructure. But levelling up as a thing still doesn't seem to be much more than a branding exercise. He adds that a lack of bandwidth in Whitehall caused by Covid and Brexit, coupled with a lack of detailed plans, means that many policies are not accompanied by 500-page white papers seen under previous governments. This is a Prime Minister that likes the moonshots and bold ambitions. The big test for the next four years is whether they can back that up with really kind of granular plans for getting stuff done. More than any individual policy area, that is a gap, Thomas says. They should be able to make the legal and policy changes that they want, but the most significant changes that voters will notice take years to actually make happen. Whether they've got the administrative times to have changes on the ground, particularly on things like levelling up, we shall see. They might have a story to tell, but whether they will change the country, I don't know. Greg Clark, the former business secretary, who alongside Jeremy Hunt, is jointly overseeing a Commons inquiry into lessons learned from the Covid crisis and a key role in drafting the 2005 Tory manifesto. He points out that the 1979 Thatcher manifesto was not a detailed programme and didn't suffer for that. I think the thinner the manifesto, the better, and the more confidence that entails. Delivering Brexit and levelling up are the two principal things 
and you have to concede that the government continues to be deadly serious about both. Levelling up not only communicated a vision that resulted in a big majority, but it actually has been the lodestar everyone talks about. The Treasury's green book rules and value for money have been changed to allow more government investment outside the southeast of England. Clark says that, plus a continued focus on industrial strategy, builds on the key insight of people like the Bank of England's Andy Haldane, that even a small improvement in productivity in small and middle-sized towns can make a huge impact in narrowing inequality across England. Former Minister Tracy Crouch says that the manifesto was clearly a one-nation Tory prospectus, but the government has sometimes failed to frame its economic response to coronavirus in similar terms. Increasing universal credit, the furlough scheme itself, were both big one-nation policies, but we didn't communicate that effectively. Crouch points to the Tories' review of gambling laws that has been started, an issue over which she resigned from the May government, plus its moves to being roughs, uh, bring rough sleepers off the streets during the pandemic. The manifesto was really conscious of various social divides that he wants to bridge. I suspect that the one word that would sum up 2020 for the Prime Minister is frustrating, because there's a lot that he wanted to do on social policy side of things that he's just not been able to do. Leveling up or levelling down? Crouch's seat in Kent is one of several taken from Labour after Blair. With working class voters shifting to the Tories long before the Red Wall was a phenomenon. I still think of my seat as a Labour seat. There's nowhere in my constituency that's rich, but people vote Conservative because of that mixture of compassion and aspiration. It's about giving people hope and opportunity by supporting them through circumstances that are beyond their control. That's the real Boris, and I just hope we see more of it in 2021. Salma Shah, a former special advisor to Chancellor Sajid Javid, is more sceptical about the levelling up agenda. She floats the idea that Johnson said Theresa May may have been unlucky with the timing of the respective premierships. They were prime ministers at the wrong time. She would have been very good with Covid, very methodical. He would have been very good after the referendum in just getting Brexit through. She also queries Johnson's connection with what is known as white van man and woman votes. I have not seen anyone really articulate what levelling up means. He can't articulate what connects him to those voters. And the danger is the voters are projecting onto him what they want to think. That's why he's a brilliant campaigner, but doesn't make for delivery of concrete policy. One former insider has a similar take. Because he's also so amiable and so socially agile or elastic, you almost get to the point where people can project onto him, they said. Boris does allow other people to paint what they want to see on him. I have asked myself, was Boris the guy that I said uh, that I sold to other people? Or was that me thinking I was putting paint on the canvas, when in fact all I was doing was holding the easel? A strange kind of majority. A major problem caused by the Cummings tenure in Downing Street in 2020 was not just the way he undermined the government's COVID messaging with his infamous trip to Barnard Castle. The senior aide's loathing of the Tory party in Parliament caused MPs to question the FPM's judgment and led to serial rebellions as U-turns on everything from preschool meals to summer exams proceeded. Paul Goodman suggests that the majority of 80 has been undermined by a long-term rise in backbench rebellions by newer MPs, research groups and a culture of WhatsApp that the whips can't handle, get handle on. Many Tories are ready to put up a fight against tax rises 
to pay for the pandemic, and some are furious about COVID restrictions. He's basically a bread and circuses politician. Are you not entertained? Cut taxes, borrow more, build bridges, let's not worry about tomorrow. That was fine when you had room for manoeuvre, but COVID changed all that, unless we accelerate our way out with a roaring 20s growth and so on. Even though the Tories are still pulling a healthy 40% against Labour, Goodman points out that the Conservative Homes panel of activists now puts the PM in negative rating territory, a dramatic, dramatic shift from his 93% approval rating last December. For some MPs, the disruption of COVID has been matched by the chaos of Johnson's leadership style. Anyone who's ever worked with him knows it's going to be a kind of non-logical process, intuitive, contradictory, deliberate attempts to conceal what he really thinks, Goodman says. One government insider actually confides that even if COVID had not happened, the chaos would have been exposed, but in a different sort of way. Goodman adds that the underlying problems of a Johnson premiership have been laid bare over the past 12 months. At the time of the Tory leadership, we had the line from Batman reversed. He's not the leader we deserve. He's the leader the Tories need right now to get Brexit done and to see off Corbyn. But it was never likely he was would ever run a competent government because he is because he is himself. Green shoots. But there is one policy area that many Tories and even those outside government think could offer Johnson a real chance to get on the front foot in 2021, the environment. Like partner Carrie Simmons, the PM has been immersed for years in the Green Movement thanks to his father Stanley and brother Leo. Close friends, Ben and Zach Goldsmith, have been hugely influential too. The decision to inject four billion into energy efficiency while short of the sum some wanted, was bigger than anything Labour or Cameron or May did in office. Recent new targets to double the pace of carbon cutting across the UK economy, to power every home with wild wind energy, and to end all sales of petrol and diesel vehicles in just nine years, something even Corbyn couldn't get past trade unions, have impressed some in the sceptical environmental movement. Overnight on Saturday, on the anniversary of Johnson's election, his big new policy announcement was that the UK would no longer invest in overseas fossil fuel projects, a change welcomed by Greenpeace and others. Joss Garman, UK Director of the European Climate Foundation, praised the progress, but of course the hard part will be turning them into reality, and doing that in a way which sustains public transport. It remains to be seen if the policy detail will match the PM's rhetoric, but done right, Number 10 can ensure towns across the country benefit from all the jobs that will be making electric cars and batteries, installing charging points and clean heating systems, and exporting our clean energy technologies to the rest of the world. If Johnson and Sunak can put the detailed investment plans in place to realise this big jobs stimulus, they will be able to demonstrate a green recovery to the rest of the world, which could help unlock similar promises from other major economies and the G7 and COP26 next year. Manifesto co-author Rachel Wolf has been another key figure arguing for the green policy as a way to boost jobs and skills in less well-off areas, as has North East MP and former Minister Simon Clark. With the UK hosting the delayed COP26 climate talks next year, as well as the G7 summit, one silver lining of the pandemic is that it brought Johnson time for the arrival of the Biden administration, and the Chinese government's shift towards tougher climate targets. 
coming out of recession will also be key to the building of the green agenda. The Institute for Government's Alex Thomas says the real policy delivery that will most affect the government is not in its manifesto, but in its vaccine rollout programme. I think the vaccine is everything. If they get it right, then that offers a real chance for a sort of substantial reset and will be a very significant achievement. Get it wrong and that will knock them enormously off course. Keeping the economic wheels spinning in the early phases of the pandemic was probably the most significant decision they took and the manifesto appeals into insignificance to that, really. If there is a Brexit deal and the vaccine rollout, then actually that will create quite a lot of political space for them to get cracking on the rest of the agenda. Greg Clark says the most pivotal decisions of the government were to invest early in vaccines and also to extend furlough to ensure a bounce back in the spring of next year uh, that could be fully exploited. A lot of jobs that would otherwise have gone well resume in the spring. Brexit aside, I think the prospects for 2021 are really quite bright. I think once we are released from the COVID measures, <coughs> growth will be very substantial. Royal Bank of Scotland is forecasting growth of 5.5% next year and 6.6% after that. And that will feel pretty buoyant to people by contrast to what they've experienced. If we get a Brexit deal, we could literally start 2021 with some exuberance and solid ground for thinking that 2021 could really be a year in which we put 2020 behind us. If we don't, it injects its own problems, both in terms of confidence, but also in terms of the reality of tariffs and checks and disruption. And with uncanny timing, Johnson's first anniversary since his election win coincides with talks with the EU about that Brexit deal currently on a knife edge. On Sunday, we will all know whether the past year will get better or whether 2020's chaos will continue. So there you go, a little bit of reading there of uh, consideration of how Johnson has performed. There's also in that article, which I've placed on Facebook, the audit by the Huffington Post on different things that the Conservatives had promised. So for instance, you know, transport, uh, where they promised £29 billion rebuilding fund, uh, scaled back to £27 billion. Uh, the planned Midlands rail hub is similarly in only its nascent stages of development. There are also deep concerns that the third leg of HS2 between Birmingham and Leeds uh, will be scrapped. Uh, but then you've got things like work and pensions, foreign policy, obviously the cutting there of uh, part of its uh, overseas budget as well, digital culture, media and sport, business, justice, um, you know, for instance, the review of the human rights law uh, is obviously designed to limit a judge's ability to block deportations of foreign criminals, but this is still obviously in the development process. Education, Obviously, we had the A level and GCSE results fiasco. Um, Williamson has actually not performed very well. I suspect he's going to be reshuffled when that comes up. I suspect. So, there you are. That's uh, a little bit of a consideration of that. Uh, we find that interesting. And uh, I'll just uh, stop that one there. Uh, do remember, like most things in politics, it's a, it's a process, not an event. Who knows in a few months' time whether things, as I suggested in the article about the rollout of the vaccine, and indeed more pertinent than that, the uh, Brexit trade deal or no deal will determine an awful lot of uh, how people respond to 
Conservative government and obviously to Johnson's leadership, including, of course, uh, whether or not there'll be greater discontent and rebellion on the backbenches.